You are listening to a podcast from UIB Right. Okay, so uh, we're gathering here in this podcast. And the topic we're going to talk about is technology in the classroom instruction and support for writing. We're two media students. My name is Elena. I study media and interaction design. By my side, I have... Alan. I'm, uh, I just finished my bachelor's degree in new media. And we're here with... Uh, I'm Karen Head. Um, I'm uh, an associate professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia, um, where I also serve as the executive director of the Communications Center, which is our tutoring center for all things communication related. And I'm the uh, associate chair in the School of Literature, Media and Communication. And I'm Chris Anson. I'm a distinguished uh, professor at North Carolina State University, where I direct the Campus Writing and Speaking Program which is a program designed to help faculty, academic staff, to integrate writing and oral communication more effectively into all the courses across the curriculum. And you both do research uh, on the craft of teaching writing with a focus on teaching practices in the digital age. And in both positive and negative ways, how would you say that new technologies have changed or impact the teaching of writing in the recent years? Well, if we go back far enough, the advent of word processing revolutionized the teaching of writing. Um, And I don't mean that term lightly. I think it really did uh, utterly change the way that people compose because prior to word processing, people had to type on typewriters and every time they made a revision, they had to retype the text. So it was extremely cumbersome And for students, I think it pushed against the idea of revision. Um, And as soon as we had word processors, students were able to sort of almost magically change the text on screen without having to print everything or type everything out again. So that facilitated a great deal more practice of revision, whereas before it was was very difficult. Uh, I remember having a Selectric typewriter, which which was the most uh, novel piece of equipment at the time. It was, it was bought as a graduation present for me. And it had a little white ribbon inside that would allow you to correct a letter and type over it. And it also had replaceable type balls. So you would open the cover, you would take off the, the regular font ball and put the italic font ball on and type a word in italics and then take the italic ball and put the regular one back on. But it was very innovative to be able to change the font, um, mm. just speaking visually. And now, of course, we have, we have not only many ways to manipulate the, vi- the, the look of a text, but also many ways to do multimedia with text. So that's one thing I will point to is going back that far is that technology in the form of word processing was really quite a revolution. Yeah. That, that's one positive thing. I think it also changed the conversation um, it, it elevated the research that was being done in the field. Um, there's a, been a history of teaching of writing as a, in the U.S., we call it a service course. So as, as a thing that's in service to other disciplines that are somehow more serious. And I think because the technology aspect suddenly our our colleagues from science and engineering began to understand the work that we were doing in new and different ways. And so I think the conversations then with those colleagues became different. And so I think that's actually 
one of the things that that helps um, begin the conversations about writing across the curriculum and writing in the disciplines, um, because we had a common ground suddenly that hadn't existed before, or at least that's the story I've heard. It predates me a little bit as a scholar, but um, and I certainly saw that play out in in writing center work, which is actually my area, which is the support of writing in whatever students are doing. They come to us to be to be helped with the, the sort of the basics of writing, but also the the more global um, issues with writing to be better communicators. And so, yeah, yeah, th that movement I think was very important, um, as Karen has said, um, because it really shifted attention away from the centralization of writing. It had been associated previously with the work of literary scholars, and it was housed in English departments, at least in the U.S., and then spread it out across the curriculum. We have, we have looked at genres that are assigned in courses across the curriculum that no one, no one in our first year writing program has ever heard of, much less taught. And there's so many of them and they're so diverse that the only and best people to support students' development in those genres are the teachers in those disciplines. So a lot of our work is, is to help them to develop the pedagogical, the teaching tools necessary to support students' writing within the disciplines. Mm -hmm. That movement has been around for about 50 years in the U.S. It's growing slowly around the world, but it depends in part on the, the nature, the delivery system, and the nature of teaching. So if, if you have a culture where the dominant model is lecture test, mm -hmm. those teachers may be resistant to the idea of doing a lot with writing and they may say that's somebody else's job. So it takes also some revision in the way that you think about student learning, um, making them more active, using writing as a way to facilitate learning, because it's a very powerful tool for learning. Mm -hmm. uh, when you put down your thoughts, they're made visible and they can feed back in, into your mind and you can test yourself out. And, um, and I, like to, I like to, for resistant teachers, I like to remind them that I've, I've, I, don't, I didn't do a degree in oral, there's a whole discipline of oral communication, communication studies um, that people do PhDs in. I never did a PhD in communication, but it doesn't mean that I don't use speaking in my course. So if you didn't do a degree in English or writing, it doesn't mean that you don't use writing as a mode of learning and working with challenging subject matter. So you asked about some of the positives and negatives of technology. And so one thing I'm interested in is how connected students are. I mean, almost all the time, I can go up and down the hallway of my, mm -hmm. of my classroom building and the students are all sitting on, you know, on benches on their phones or laptops almost to the student. They're never disconnected. And in the classroom, that can become a challenge because I want them to refer to materials, I want them to use their laptops to write, I want them to read material that, that may be online and are in our learning management system. But I suspect very often that a lot of students are doing something else, that they're working on, they're, they're on Facebook or they're doing something with social media and we're trying to carry on a class. And I'm not sure how to juggle those two things. I, some, some teachers say laptops closed during a discussion, but then what if there's a reading that they're trying, or notes that they're trying mm -hmm. to refer to? Um, some teachers don't care. Some, some scholars argue that students today are much better at multitasking so they can listen to something while they're also doing something else. I don't quite believe that, and there's not a lot, a lot of evidence to support that. Actually, the neuroscientists 
who I work with at, at tech say it's a question of code switching and that young people switch code more quickly. But there really is no, that, that multitasking is a myth, that, that our brain only does one thing, yeah. you know, it, but it, it can switch very quickly. That's a potential liability is the, is connectivity, connectivity is a good thing socially and, you know, there are all kinds of positive reasons to be connected. It's safer to have a phone with you that allows you to connect. Um, people are abducted and they call from the from the back trunk of a car, and you know, so or you're, or they're lost and they can use their phone and they can track and do all kinds of things that we didn't have before. Uh, but in the classroom, I worry about overconnectivity and and the lack of attention. That sounds a little old-fashioned and conservative today, but um, I'm st I still worry about it. So at my university, students are required to own a laptop. And um, by definition, that means that as a faculty member, I have the expectation that they will have a laptop in the classroom. And when that uh, rule was uh, taken up about a decade or so ago, I was working in our Center for Teaching and Learning. And we had a lot of faculty who really pushed back and said, again, they're just going to, the students are going to be not paying attention, they're, they're going to be on social media. And I think it's about good communication um, with students. And so uh, I made the joke uh, in, in a session where we were talking about using laptops in the classroom. And I said, well, because I had one particular faculty member who was really pushing back, he was really complaining. And I said, well, what did you do to not pay attention as a student? <laughs> and, and, and he sort of you know, <laughs> shuddered a bit. And I said, because for me, I would read other books, you know, I'd sort of have them behind the actual book I was supposed to be reading. I said, or I would do crossword puzzles or I said, so distraction isn't new in the classroom. The question is, are you being interesting enough and engaged enough as a faculty member to keep that from, from being a problem? And, and sure, that's, that's not going to win every single student. But I think I'm a, I'm a, a generation younger than you, Chris. I'm, we're about 10 years mm -hmm. apart. And so for me, I'm a little less, um, as you said, that's a sort of old fashioned. Yeah. But I also am very um, aware. And I think sometimes being very honest with students, I love the fact that if we don't know the answer to something, we can look it up in the moment. Or I can you know, have them typing on social media and, and we're running a, a Twitter stream behind me and, and people are participating. There's a double conversation going on. But I, I always tell my students, I know the difference. Like if you're, I, I know actually there is a, there is a, there is a decidedly different sound to when you're taking notes or you're doing something that I know is related to class and when you're actually on social media. And I have, um, I have a habit of teaching often from the back of the room instead of the front of the room and I can see all the screens. Um, which is also helpful. But if a student starts going off doing something else, I explain to them that the reason I have a problem with it isn't that they've made the choice to not be active in the classroom. It's that it's the distraction. I can see, so Chris is sitting here with his um, laptop open. It's hard for me to not actually be pulled mm -hmm. in. And so I talk a bit about the distraction of that. If I feel a student is being distracting, I just simply walk over and push the laptop closed myself, and I don't say anything. I don't make a big deal of it. Um, but I, but I do think having those conversations um, about how the technology is a factor of our lives 
So much so, there was just a piece that came out. Um, you were talking about all the students with their heads down. There's an evolutionary thing that's happening that scientists have realized there's a spur, a bone spur that's happening in the yes, back I've of heard necks. That, actually. Yeah. yeah, and that essentially they say that there's going to be a horn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that it's like the young people are exhibiting the, the evolutionary signs of a horn coming out of the back of their neck because they stay like, you know, with their heads down all the time, which I find sort of fascinating and frightening at the same time. So we're never, I mean, at this point, I don't think we can, we can think that technology isn't going to be a factor in the classroom because it's simply a factor in our everyday lives. Yeah. So it's, it's how you negotiate that in the conversations right. that you right. have, yeah. I mean, another, another great advantage is the way that technology allows the classroom to bleed out into other times and spaces, right? So all of the students in all of my classes, I, I put them into small groups of usually three or four in our learning management system. So they're grouped up in there and they need to write to and for each other about the course material outside the context of the class. Before the advent of technology, there was really no way to do that unless they got together, which, was, which is often impossible because they work and they can't meet. Mm -hmm. Now they can do this on their own time. They can post asynchronously. Mm -hmm. To, to the uh, to the chat not the chat but the um, forum that we that I set up and uh, and carry on conversations and I can assess those and read them and never before was I able to do that so that's something I think that uh, is a really positive innovation from technology is you know again this this idea that you don't just finish the class when it's over it continues to to happen um, elsewhere. I think it's also really interesting. Um, I love that I can see that there are trends of understanding or misunderstanding, yeah. um, and you can you can see that in forums. I was a little uncomfortable when I first realized, and this has been a number of years ago, that my students were setting up alternate spaces as well, which excluded me. And so things like separate group me sites mm -hmm. or s Slack channels. Yeah. And at first, I remember feeling, well, besides the sense of excluded, you know, like, well, but, but I'm not controlling that conversation. And I, but then I started to really watch what was happening with groups in the classroom and how they were interacting. And it became very clear to me that these were very important spaces where they felt safe to speak to one another and to give each other feedback or to ask questions that they didn't want me to know they didn't know or they didn't feel comfortable asking in front of me. And so I think that's another really wonderful way that technology is in the classroom, even apart from the classroom. I mean, that's sort of outside of our control as instructors. So, um, but it does take a little getting used to because I think when you're trained sort of as a teacher in the classical sense, there is that authority of, you know, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm the instructor. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, you, I have found, I think, in, in 20 years of teaching in higher ed, mm -hmm. that the more willing I am to give up a certain amount of that authority, that's where the magic happens. And it's, yeah, so, so technology is, is, is doing interesting things that are actually completely out of our control. Yeah. Yeah. And some, I think some teachers are unsettled by that. There's a, there's a site in the U.S., I don't know if it's international or not, called ratemyprofessors.com. Yeah, I've heard about that. You've heard about that, yeah. yeah. And so students, it's completely outside the control or realm of teachers, and students can go on there and 
you know, gripe about, about their teachers or, or say good things. And I think if you accept the fact that everybody has spaces where they can go and talk, then, then you're okay with that. Um, if you think that you need to be in control of even students' evaluations of you, then you're going to not like it. Um, it's going to be unsettling for you. But I, I, got, I got kind of curious about um, you standing at the back of the classroom. Like, how did you come up with that? So there are gendered elements, obviously, also to being a classroom instructor. And so Chris and I, just by default, would have very different experiences um, because he's male and I'm female. And, um, and there's a lot of research that shows that students react. In fact, there's some very interesting uh, studies of online education where with teaching um, evaluations, actually, where if the student actually doesn't ever see the faculty member, but if they um, assign a male name, the perception of the credibility and ability and success of that course will be higher for the male name than the female name, even if behind the scenes, it's actually They've given a man a woman's name and given, yeah. And so, so we know that gender is, is a part of it. For me, I really didn't want to be, we have an expression um, called the sage on the stage. And so that very traditional lecturing style, which puts you front and center. Um, I started moving to the back of the classroom when I started teaching slightly larger classes if I teach a smaller class, I'm going to have students circle up. And so there is no front of the room. And I sit in the circle at some, and I tend to move where I sit in the circle every day. Um, but when I was in a room where I couldn't do that, and that wasn't a way of sort of working with the space, I wanted to decentralize my role. And so moving myself to the back of the room was one way of doing that. Um, there's also the tendency that the people at the back of the room least want to be engaged sometimes. I mean, we all do it. We do it in faculty meetings. I don't know about you, Chris, but you know, sometimes if I just really am like, oh, no, I'm sitting in the back today. Um, and so we, you know, we get that, but it, it changes up that dynamic. I mean, suddenly the back of the room isn't necessarily where you want to be if you don't want to be engaged. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think you know, thinking rhetorically about you know space and how you use that is also a big part of, of the communication dynamic in the classroom. So, and I think the technology, to some extent, now that you've mentioned this, is um, is pushing attention away from the teacher, the sage on the stage, because students are engaged in whatever the technology is mediating, right? So in a way, it's sort of building in a more student-facing, more student-centered kind of learning uh, rather than the expert, you know, pronouncing the truth and the students, you know, taking notes and then regurgitating the information. So maybe that's another advantage of the technology is the way that it's changing the focus, or the focus of students to material and not always to the teacher. And that can be a problem with online education. So for massive open online courses for MOOCs, they were all recorded, and so by default, they became that faculty-focused, will you watch a video of me telling you things, um, which was one of the things I hated most about it. I just, I really, recording, you know, those was, it was really difficult. And in fact, I, my, um, my, uh, my co-professor who worked on the project with me, I finally said, you're going to have to come and sit. Um, and she sat right below the camera because I had to have someone to talk to. I couldn't just talk to the camera. 
uh, it was just, it was very difficult. There is something about the face-to-face -face communication, which makes it easier to convey the message, I think. Could it be a challenge that the MOOCs are recorded in advance? Well, they've, so they've improved on it. And I think some of the best, and, and MOOCs are separate from what I would call extremely well done online education. Mm -hmm. It takes a, a good deal of money and instructional design to create the kind of interactive environments that are equal to or at least synonymous to in ways that are still a positive experience to have the kind of engagement that I think great teachers want mm -hmm. rather than just a static, you watch me talk about something in a video and then you go and do something because um, I, I still say that while I had 22,000 students in my MOOC, I still mourn them because I never knew them. I, I mourn the students I never had because it's not like the experience that I have in a regular classroom. So I think you have to be careful when technology enters in that the technology doesn't become the, a barrier. You want it to actually create more access and more open, but it can very quickly be narrowed in and, and become a kind of barrier to what, what I, personally for me, I think of as good teaching, good engagement. Mm -hmm. so, so you have to be, you know, you have to be very careful about the design. You are listening to a podcast from UIB Right. So, you mentioned the screencast. Would that be more similar to face-to-face -face communication? It is, yeah. Well, we, so we've done some research comparing teachers' written responses on students' papers to responses that they've given the students using the screencast technology, which is a technology that allows them to open a paper, a student's paper on screen, scroll through, highlight things, mark it up, mm -hmm. all while they're talking to the student. Um, and the program we used is called Jing, and it gives you five minutes maximum recording time. So it's actually, it's, it's actually preferred by teachers because they don't want to be given 25 minutes per paper. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see this little red bar you know, that's telling them that they're running out of time. So for shorter papers, three or four pages, you can usually give some good commentary in five minutes. So we did research comparing students' impressions of the written responses compared to the screencast. Um, and and it w the results were extraordinarily positive for the screencast, especially in terms of affective measures. So meaning things like helpfulness, um, uh, students' feelings about uh, teachers' positive attitudes toward their writing, uh, so they, f they found it more helpful, um, more, the teacher was more approachable, more personable than in the written versions. Mm -hmm. And another curious thing we found was that when teachers are reading student papers, they can start marking them up, marking up the errors and look for surface problems. In the screencast, they would often wait till the end to sort of mention the errors, but they wouldn't start with them. They'd start with meaning. And we think that's because when you're talking to a student, it would be a little socially weird to say, you know, hi, Carl, line three, comma, splice, yeah. line six, <laughs> you know, wrong, you know, wrong word or something, um, wrong preposition or something. And so they would start always by, by talking, by addressing the student by name, which they didn't do when they wrote. They didn't say, they didn't write a letter like Dear X. Um, mm -hmm. They addressed the students by name, which the students actually liked. Mm -hmm. they, they told us that. And they would begin usually by saying something positive. So I've read your paper. 
I really like what you did here, and then they would go and do some more critique. And I think that's one of the reasons that students preferred the screencast so much, because not only is it an audio-visual account, mm -hmm. but it gives voice, literally gives voice to the teacher's uh, thoughts and impressions. The students in our research said, many of them said, I think my teacher spent more time with my writing when they did the screencast than when they wrote comments. When we interviewed the teachers, they said after they, they it took a little while to get used to doing these because they'd never done them, they spent less time. Mm -hmm. Teachers said they spent less time, students thought they spent more time. So something's going on there with, with the screencasting that we think is very positive, and we wouldn't have that without technology. We have one-to-one -one conferences, but you have to be physically present. It has to be during certain hours. You can't do it at midnight. <laughs> um, which is the which is what some of our teachers did. They worked on the weekends or something. And you know, on the other hand, for things I learned from teaching the MOOC was, even though I do discussion-based teaching, there are certain things I always say. You know, in certain classes, they're just there's certain content that must be said. And what I've learned is that I have recorded some of those kinds of things, and I almost make them as a kind of like supplemental text for the course. And I like the fact that I don't waste the precious in-class time that I have because those things need to be said, they need to be communicated, but if that happens outside of the classroom and then the students come in, I'm able to interact with them in the ways that I can only do with them in the classroom. And so I like that it has freed me up to do more of the kind of thing that I really want to do. In writing center work, we also, it's very similar to the screencast, we um, traditionally you would come in, you would sit down with the tutor, tutor would ask you questions, um, and we have sort of a, 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 a sort of mythologized almost tradition of tutors never write on a student's paper. You know, we, we, we don't take ownership of, you know, we're there to coach and to ask questions. But students don't always take the best notes and they don't always remember the things that they need to most remember from the experience. Even small group tutoring, several people will not have heard all of the same things. And so we started using iAnnotate, um, which is a, uh, an app that you can use with iPads. And so we would load the student paper onto the iPad and we would sit with them and we could embed audio. And so we would click the, you know, we would go to the point in the paper that we were talking about and, you know, and it would isolate there and sort of put, put a comment button. And then we would record the question and the student's answer. And so then it saves the whole thing. And when the student goes back and reviews the session, essentially, they don't forget what the conversation was. And it's the same kind of thing. We actually wound up spending less time with certain kinds of things, but they felt that the experience was much more quality and engaged and that they their perception of the whole experience was so much stronger. So I think there really is something to the that sense of voice and maybe that's also, I don't know, are, are, there, are they doing some cultural studies, generational studies to that sort of react to the fact that students, and you're both young, I mean, that sense of having the voice, having the, the sort of virtual reality aspect of the person mm -hmm. there with you, is that carrying forward, I'm wondering if that's part of why students feel like it's a much more quality experience than just textual response. Because they don't know how, they probably have the impression the teacher kind of skims through the paper yeah. and makes a few comments and then as fast as possible on the, 
audiovisual nature of the of, of the screencast is um, demonstrating that the teacher has actually read what they've tried to say. You are listening to a podcast from UIB Right. Could you tell us more about uh, some tools, like for example, Fakebook? Well, I like Fakebook. I mean, it's it's um, it's limited in the sense that you need to have characters or historical figures to build a profile. But if you think about students researching, let's say they're, maybe they're in a science course and there's some element of researching, you know, historical figures and they might, uh, one student might choose Galileo or something and they're gonna create a face, Facebook profile. They have to go and read and learn about who Galileo knew and what the relationship was with people and and then they're essentially using all their skills of social media to create these, these profiles and then populate them with interactions. Uh, and I think partly because it looks like social media, it really engages them. Mm-hmm. Even though when you think about the sort of deep, the, what's underlying the, the, the work and the analysis and the collection of data that's underlying that is really sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just maybe don't feel it. Um, so much because they're using, you know, Facebook kind of language, which is okay. They don't have to be formal, but they have to have the information, right, in order to uh, in order to build the profiles and make the interactions. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes just emulating social media. So I was doing a workshop um, at a school in in Maryland, and there was a there was a teacher in the audience who said, "I use I have students." try to, uh, to write a tweet that summarizes uh, a peer-reviewed journal article. And if you think about like the constraint of the tweet, how you have to fit the gist of the article into this narrow little bandwidth of words, it's very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you really have to know the article in order to make the tweet. Well, and I think the, the shift towards thinking about writing as a way of learning and that you can do that in lots of different discourse scenarios. And so I think this is one of the ways um, I often will talk to colleagues in areas in science and engineering is we all learn different languages. We all learn different, I mean, languages, I'm, I'm air quoting that so since people can't see me. Um, you know, there's a, there's a language for science and there's a language for engineering and and. You know, there's a language for literary studies, and there's a language for social media. Um, learning to translate and talk in the fields that we work in is really important. Mm-hmm. This is particularly challenging for students in, in the United States whose first language is not English, because not only do they have to negotiate the English, they have to then also negotiate whatever their disciplinary English is, and that changes. And what the expectations are, what's acceptable, you know, whether you write in passive voice or whether you write in active voice and just the way that we present information. And I think students today really, the, the value of some of these multimodal assignments, so using various modes and, and incorporating writing and speaking and technology, they, they do have to do this really important content work to, because translating anything is learning, you have to really learn about the thing to be able to do that. And so, um, you know, my students actually don't use Fakebook because they somehow manage to 
negotiate and not get kicked off of Facebook for doing what they were doing. But I was telling them, was uh, telling folks afterwards, um, a group of my students did, there's a, a Jane Austen novella. It's actually one of her early works called Lady Susan, and it's epistolatory. So it's written as letters. And the students translated all those letters into Facebook discourse. And so the main character in that book, she writes different kinds of letters. So she writes some letters where she's purporting to be, you know, oh, yes, you know, I love the thing. But then she has a friend who in, in, in the background she's sending private letters to and she's admitting to, you know, she wants to have this affair with this, you know, and she's you know, so having an affair with a married man and, you know, and, and she hates her sister-in-law mm-hmm. and she hates her daughter. And, you know, and so, so they translated this into sort of back-channeled, you know, direct messages in Facebook and then what was actually published you know, on the on the main side, and you know, they built the friend network, and so, and they they basically translated. But to do that, they really had to understand, a, you know, a, a very different century, a very different you know culture, um, and and then to translate it, that into modern terms, they had to do a lot of really important analysis and critical work, mm-hmm. and they came back ultimately knowing so much more about that original text than they ever would have known. And so I think that's a really great example of how, you know, talking to my colleagues in other fields who don't have a tradition necessarily of doing that kind of work, um, how it really can change things. And I remember math, of course, was one of the, the big fields that just, they just didn't write. I mean, in mathematics dissertations are notoriously, you know, 12 pages. You know, it's the algorithm you developed and a few words about it sometimes. And um, they started doing posters for their conferences, so poster sessions. And this was this huge thing. They really struggled at first, but then they began to realize that the students were you know, understanding so much more about mathematical concepts because they were having to create these visuals to explain to other people. And so I think there's real power in doing this kind of work and so convincing faculty in other areas to do this. It's, it's very much about learning anything. Yeah, there's there's an, the writing to learn. That's so. Those are examples of students who might do something formal and learn more as a result of of their engagement. There's another kind of writing to learn, which I like to think of it as input based. So it's it's before the learning has been finished. Typically, we ask students to write as a reflection of everything they've already learned. It's the output of learning. It's a test of learning. And input based writing is tentative. It's exploratory. It they don't have the answers. They're asked. They're wondering aloud, right? Um, does it mean this? And and you tolerate that. You would never tolerate that in a formal paper. You'd be saying, "Have a thesis. You know, org- structure your your paper." In this case, it's very much input based. Very. Um, they're they're grappling with challenging ideas, and they haven't formulated responses to those yet. And and so so teachers have to get used to looking at writing in a very different way. Like when they're doing it for learning, for the purpose of learning, they have to tolerate grammar errors, students write quickly, they're not revising. Um, And that takes a shift sometimes in their attitudes. For what teaching purposes or in what teaching situations do you find digital technologies particularly useful? Well, again, I think that there's no getting away from it. So I, I do often run Twitter streams in my classroom. So we'll decide on a hashtag. I usually let the students pick the hashtag. Um, and I like that it tends to, so we, 
so we have a we have a joke because I'm at a, you know, a, a school that historically has just been engineers and computer scientists, and so um, the the joke is, what's the difference between an, an introverted engineer and an extroverted engineer? And the punchline is, the extroverted engineer looks at your shoes when they're talking to you. <laughs> so you know, introverts look at their own shoes, yeah. and yeah, yeah. So the extrovert looks at your <laughs> shoes. So there is a there is a kind of tradition and a bit of a stereotype, yeah. some of which is still manifest. Um, we have uh, quite a few introverted students, and they simply won't talk in class, but they will talk through technology. And I love the fact that it pulls them into the conversation, and it creates a, a space for them. Um, they feel safer. They feel more free to say. And then I think sometimes also because scientists and engineers also, um, sometimes they just need a little bit more time to think. They're not as quick to give an answer. And so they have that space to be sort of thinking and then they can write. And even if we've moved on to something else, they can still put that into the conversation and then we can all go back and have benefit of the stream itself after the fact as well. And so I do like that it um, it brings people in to the classroom conversations that we're having in ways that they wouldn't have been pre-technology. They simply would have sat there and been quiet. Do you have a couple of recommendations for teachers that want to start using digital tools? Well, what's what's the learning goal? Spend some time, art time articulating the learning goal as, as specifically as you can then ask whether the technology is adding anything to achieving that goal uh, so that you're not just adopting technologies because they're there. There's some things that just work better without technologies to achieve certain goals. Um, so I think that would be my, you know, my main piece of advice is know what you're trying to do, know, know what's going to get there, know whether the technology is enhancing the ability to get there, and if it's not, don't use it. You know, sometimes it doesn't work, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. And the other thing that I like to do is I ask students about new technologies because oftentimes they're just, you know, there's just something I don't know about. And I'll say, so we're going to try to do the following. And again, it's about goals. You know, our goal is this. Do you know of a way we might get there? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, often students will say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're using this new, you know, I remember when Snapchat became sort of a thing and, and they were like, you know, yeah, you know, we, that would be really well suited for. And so I think also bringing students into the some of the pedagogical decisions can be interesting as well. I mean, make them part of, of the process. Just a last simple question. Uh, you mentioned that you use Twitter and hashtags in your class. Uh, what's the most creative hashtag? Yeah. That's a difficult yeah, question. Yeah, that's a difficult question. <laughs> I mean, there, there might be some funny ones. There, yeah, there, there, there are. So um, it, it sounds really, it sounds really horrible. Um, one of the, one of the hashtags that the students actually selected, we had a very, again, it was a, a character we were talking about in a particular um, novel, and she was a very bad person. <laughs> And um, and they decided because I, I let students pick the hashtags usually um, they're they're just better and sort of usually funnier mm -hmm. and um, and I, I kind of had to decide whether to let this one go and I decided well we're all in you know they're a certain age but it was hashtag she's a bitch oh. um, <laughs> which I was <laughs> and and with that I would say um, while I rankled a little bit I was a little nervous about that 
that's a good example of a generational divide where I, I had to be a little bit comfortable with something that maybe made me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I decided it wasn't so horrific. Um, but then, you know, I actually used that as a teaching tool because I said, you know, I think we have to talk about the rhetoric around this. And so why is this female character, because she's female, we're going to use this pejorative term. Whereas if this were a male character, how would you hashtag that? You know, and so we wound up having this really constructive conversation about that. And so sometimes, again, there are the the unexpected gifts that you get as a teacher if you can turn everything into a teaching moment. So, um, yeah, but sometimes it's I, I have refused a couple of hashtags and said, no, you can't use that because um, it's public. You have been listening to a podcast from UIB Rights.